This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Half Street Group brings a new generation's perspective to leadership communications, strategic public relations, and digital marketing. Half Street helps organizations and leaders take control of their own stories and manage their reputations. They get results for their clients by focusing on audience, message, and culture, and by leveraging their decades-long relationship with media and opinion leaders in the Ocean State and throughout New England. Join me and Half Street Group founder and president Mike Rea for a conversation every month about news of the day, the hottest media analysis, and a look behind the scenes at how impactful leaders drive conversations. Learn more at halfstreetgroup.com. We continue our monthly conversation with the one and only Mike Rea, Half Street Group. Good morning, sir, and thanks for making the time as always. Thanks for having me, Bill. And I apologize at the front end for my gravelly voice. I think I got one of those uh, random early uh, winter, late fall uh, bugs, but I'm ready to do it. Uh, you sound like a million bucks to me. So there you go. Um, so lots on the table. There's lots going on, obviously, that we can talk about. One thing that's really interesting that kind of had a big burst of conversation on the day it was announced, but in the ensuing days hasn't really gotten the traction that I thought it would is the merger of Rhode Island PBS and the Publix Radio, which is the NPR affiliate formerly known as Rhode Island Public Radio, into one public media operation. This is not uncommon. Certainly you can look at WGBH where you have experience and look at New York Public Radio where they even have a blog and podcast wing down there. This isn't super uncommon. And it makes sense from a from a resource standpoint. It makes sense from a content generation standpoint. What's your initial take on the creation of a unified public media here in Rhode Island? I love this. I, I, I've in the periphery been rooting for this to happen since I was working at WGBH close to 10 years ago or more than 10 years ago at this point. Um, it's such a dynamic, such a, a unique opportunity for this marketplace to get more content, to get more news, to get more storytelling out there. One of the things that Rhode Island has always lacked, and, and in some ways, I think, Bill, you deserve a ton of credit because you brought it here. We haven't had long-form storytelling in this market for a long time, really, until your podcast came about, until uh, the Publix Radio expanded some of that opportunity that Ian Donis had around Political Roundtable. And when you bring... The a PBS affiliate, an NPR affiliate together and share resources, share newsrooms, hopefully, share creative ideating, uh, it, hopefully, you have that great opportunity for more long form storytelling so that newsmakers, opinion shapers, politicians, business leaders don't have to only worry about talking in eight second sound bites or worrying about are they only going to get two or three sentences into the print story that might come there. From a business perspective, what I think is great about it is you've got a really, really strong uh, public's radio um, in that they've got some solid local reporters. They're expanding into places like the South Coast and Westerly. You're seeing their reporters out. When I'm out with clients, you see that uh, the public's radio mic flag on podiums more often than you did when I was in state government because they've got more resources or they've got more reporters that are out there. Um, but one of these untold things that people don't realize is that Rhode Island PBS, I don't want to say that they're flush, but they made a really solid uh, return when they sold Spectrum back when the FCC was allowing stations to do a Spectrum sale. And to me, from the outside perspective, this represents a great opportunity to start putting some of those dollars 
into more content, more programming, more opportunities for local stories that you might have used to get told. Because you got to remember, there was a time in, in um, and, and I'll give the, the anecdote. I've, I've been in Rhode Island for roughly 20 years with a little sabbatical when I went back home to Maryland at the beginning of my career and for grad school. But when I was at PC in the early 2000s, I'd walk into Ray Cafeteria. I'd grab the Providence Journal on my way in. The, the Monday edition of the journal was an inch and a half thick. The Sunday edition was as heavy as the New York Times. Um, unfortunately, in spite of great, great reporters at the journal, that's not the case anymore. So having entities like Rhode Island PBS, the Public's Radio come together to be able to create more of that kind of long form content and, and hopefully be able to get into the local communities in the way that the journal used to. Uh, when they had newsrooms in Warwick and Cranston on the East Bay, um, they had two reporters or three reporters in DC from what I remember. Um, hopefully I'm optimistic and, and I guess I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist by nature, uh, is that we're going to see this kind of investment into these newsrooms. And I'm hopeful that it creates some competition and, and, and healthy competition in some of these other places, whether it's the journal, whether it's PRO, whether it's uh, the, the TV stations to say, you know what, there's a lot of great stories to be told in Rhode Island and we're missing some of them, but those guys at the public's radio or those guys at PBS, they're getting them. We got to get, we got to hunker down and we got to go find them too, because that becomes a win-win when organizations are, put resources into journalism, when organizations put resources into talented reporters, when they put resources into content, consumers of that content win, constituents win. We get better public officials. We get a more informed electorate. We get a, a more discerning consumer base. We get more interesting dinner parties that we get invited to because people are exposed to more, more things. Um, and I'm hopeful, I mean, maybe selfishly, maybe this means that the Bartholomew Town thing gets its own TV broadcast too, and we can see <laughs> your face more often, maybe even with that new haircut you were talking about That's last right. Time. We'll see if it happens. You know, it is true, though, that Publix Radio has, they do have some local programming. Let's be clear about that. There's no doubt about it. But, you mm -hmm. know, of course, I'm speaking from someone on the inside of WPRO. It, 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 they do not, they don't really have that, they certainly don't have a talk show, but there's a lot of room for that healthy competition piece and having been at Rhode Island PBS and seeing the resources that were poured into the weekly program, you realize that there, number one, there's a lot of stories to tell. And number two, there's a lot of, there's a lot of desire in the community here to consume those stories. So it's like, you've got a real big opportunity in front of you. And I wonder what that, that initiative will, will look like. There's obviously regulatory hurdles to get through. I don't see why they wouldn't. But you're right about the resources at Rhode Island PBS. It's a great opportunity as we see other media companies struggling financially or at least having the beginnings of a struggle. Great opportunity for Rhode Islanders, there's no doubt about it. No question. And, and you bring up a good point there, Bill, about like that they don't have a talk show. They don't have some of the other things. If they do go in that route, one of the things that I saw when I was at GBH, I was there when Jim and Marjorie moved from WBZ over to, or, or, or the, the station that they were at, um, and then over to um, the, 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 the GBH newsroom. And what that midday talk show provides is an opportunity for other reporters from the Herald, from the Globe, from uh, even some of their competing radio stations to be able to come on and give more in-depth analysis or more in-depth color 
to the stories that are in their papers. So I really see this as something that every, and, and I don't want to speak or, or say how reporters should or shouldn't feel about something, but to, to, to me, from the outside perspective, I see this as a, a, a net win for everybody in the market, that this can become an opportunity where with more resources, with more time, with more investment in, in, in local content, that there become a, a place for a lot of these organizations or a lot of these other newsrooms to be able to put their reporters into a studio for 25 minutes to be able to talk about their front page story in the journal and be able to, to talk about some of the perspectives from sources that they got that might not have made it in because they only had 22 column inches that they were able to write for that story. Um, long form is such a an important component of a, a community's content and a, and a community storytelling. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful. Um, I think that there are a lot of really smart and really good people on both of those boards that will um, be able to, to, to jump into this. And, and, and I'm hopeful that it sets a tone for some things that can happen in, in terms of being able to uh, reinvest and, 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 rebuild a, a foundation for um, great investments in, in, in newsrooms across the state. With that, how important is, and it's, it's kind of a leading question because it certainly is important, but talk about tailoring messaging to a variety of different audiences. That includes, of course, from your standpoint on the PR side, but also mm -hmm. for a media outlet looking out there and saying, there's a yes, there's a constituency, you can call it Rhode Islanders, but even within that, there's so many different buckets and it's not just demographic. Right. So I think one thing to say, first off, I, I want to dispel this notion and we tell clients this all the time. Media is not your audience. Like right now, you and I are having this great conversation right now and, and I love talking with you, but you're not the audience for this. It's your viewers. It's your listeners. It's the people that that that, that tune in and, and you've got an obligation when you're a messenger to be able to, to leverage and understand who is at the receiving end of what that reporter is writing or what that outlet is, is putting out there. Um, and you do take when, when you're sitting down and when we're preparing clients, like we prepare them differently for a TV interview than we do for a print interview. And for example, when you're doing TV, you have a, an obligation to be really concise and uh, really interesting. And um, you're not able to, get into the alphabet soup and into the nitty gritty detail because the way that TV works is they're, they're thinking about both the visual and the, and, and the recording that they're, they're bringing in there. Um, they have shorter segments I and mean, the typical TV, local TV segment maybe runs 90 seconds if you're getting one of the A block features. Um, and in that, they're going to want to get a couple of different perspectives. So if you're sitting down for something like that, it might be a 20-minute interview that you do with Brian Crandall or with Eli Sherman or, or, or someone. They're only going to use two 12-minute segments of your interview on that unless right. you're doing one of those longer-form sit-downs. Um, so there is a lot of uh, thought that messengers and, and spokespeople or, or executives should put into, how do you approach um, those different things? But pulling back from the media, because again, you all, I love all of you. You're not my audience. Sure. Um, my audience is, or my client's audience is the general public. It might be legislators. It might be potential funders. It could be their own internal staff. 
And what we try to do, and I just did a series of um, media training sessions at one of the the, the colleges and universities in, in, in Rhode Island. Um, and we talked with them about when you're doing any kind of public engagement, whether it's press relations, whether it's a panel discussion, um, whether it's kind of your own um, kind of email list serve that you might put out there, you want to think about things in, or you want to think about three things, audience, message, messenger, and in that order. So when we're thinking about audience and in, in, in that component, we're thinking about like, what are their motivations? What are their interests? What are, what, what's competing for their attention? Um, and in giving consideration to that, we tr- tell all of our clients, you need to go to where they are. So if, for example, you're thinking about like, you need to, 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 to reach a, one of the folks that we work with is, is Rhode Island FC and, and, uh, we're really focused right now on making sure that we're telling really good stories to potential season ticket holders um, or season ticket members. Um, they look really different. You've got some soccer nuts, people who are super, super excited about uh, and wanting to join the supporter group. They're going to be wearing the scarf and, 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 and the flags, and, and they're going to be walking from the guild to the stadium in Pawtucket on, uh, on, game, on match day all the time. On the other side of the spectrum, it's moms and dads with kids who play soccer. They might come to more of a handful of games rather than every single one. They're just as excited about it, but the soccer nuts are listening to all those soccer podcasts. They're following the soccer blogs. The moms and dads, they're reading their community newspaper. They're paying attention to what the the, the kind of chattering classes at their own kid's soccer field on the sideline. Um, so we need to make sure that we're balancing those two components and sharing messaging that's tailored for them, but not contradictory. We don't want them to have two different messages. We don't want them saying one thing to the the the, the uh, super soccer fans and one thing to uh, soccer mom in the minivan. Um, so that's what we really work with folks is give that consideration to audience and make sure that you're tailoring a message um, for that. And, and, and um, we can talk a little bit more about the, the different ways to, to be able to go in and, and, and tailor, but I don't want to dominate the whole conversation. I know you got a lot of things to be able to get in here too. Well, I, I think it, it's such an important, it's, it's, it's a good message for anybody, not just brands or firms, but even individuals who are trying to get the word out about something is stay consistent, but say, stay smart. Obviously professional partnerships and assistance from firms like half street group. I mean, that's, that's one way to do it, but there are basic tenants that you can deploy in terms of coordinating a message. And I think it's such an important thing that you point out there that a lot of people just take for granted that everyone's going to understand what you're trying to say when it makes sense to you, but not necessarily to the outside world. You bring up a really good point there. So one of the things that we've started to um, really emphasize, particularly when we do client onboarding, one of the things that we take a lot of pride in is we we make sure that our clients are media literate, that they understand how media markets work, but also that they understand how people consume messages. Um, and we tell all of our clients at the front end, when you're thinking about your audience, you need to assume that they're smart, but you also need to assume that they're not an expert. So what we mean by that is like, People have an intellectual curiosity. They want to engage. They want to be spoken to like adults. They want to be able to learn new things, but they're not insiders. They don't know the inner workings of how healthcare policy is made, or or they might not know what the acronym in a corporate filing means. 
but they are really interested in how do you get from A to B? So we start with that kind of sense of make sure that you're giving consideration to the fact that you're talking to people who are really smart, really intellectually curious. The next thing that we, we work with them on is get out of your own jargon and make sure that you're giving those really smart people who are tuning in or reading the stuff that you're putting out there a frame of understanding. Help them understand. Don't come at them right away with fact, 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 and then make your argument. Start with the anecdote. Start with the story. And it's oftentimes like, think about it. If you're going to a, a, a wedding of a cousin you haven't seen in a couple of years and you run into like one of your second cousins or an old family friend and you start talking, like if they just like sit down and they start like peppering you with back, you're going to like, like, I got to get the hell out of here. I don't want right. to keep talking to this guy. But they come in and they're like, hey, remember that time we were in grandma's basement and this funny thing happened? And they like pull you in, they start that conversation, they give you that point of entry and they ease you into it. It's the same way that like any Netflix documentary or Netflix series, like they're not going to just like jump right into the middle part of the meat of that story. You don't want to do that when you're pushing anything out to, right. to anybody. Um, but then the third thing that we do when we're doing that kind of media literacy with folks is we dispel them of this notion that they need more than one message. Effective organizations, effective leaders have one message. That doesn't mean they're saying the same thing every single moment a microphone is put in front of them or they're asked to speak somewhere. They can tailor that message. And the anecdote that I use, and, and I'm going to date myself on this um, a little bit, but, and, and you're a music guy, Bill, so you know this, all along the Watchtower. Great tune. Bob Dylan wrote the original kind of folk version, acoustic guitar, a little bit of drums in the, in the background. A couple of years later, Jimi Hendrix comes out with one much harder electric guitar going into it. Totally, totally different feel. That song's been covered over and over and over and over again. I've heard a jazz version, an R&B version. I've heard a hip hop version. I've heard a country Western version. Dave Matthews band played one when I was in high school that every single kid coming into my high school parking lot was playing as, as they were pulling their parents' minivan into the parking lot. My high school band played a really bad version in my parents' garage. <laughs> With the exception of that one, it's recognizable to any audience, right. but it's going to appeal to different niches or different genres. And that's what you want your message to be able to do. You don't want to ever say something to one audience that is indecipherable to someone else that you're talking to, but you do want to be able to make sure that you're meeting people where they are and presenting them with something that they can make a connection to. So find that way when you're doing your messaging, find your smart audience, give them a point of entry into it and figure out what concert they bought tickets to and play your version of all on the watchtower to them in that genre. What smart insight right there, and I can certainly appreciate that as someone who has also played in a garage band all on the Watchtower that should probably never be heard by the general public. I was going to say, yours is probably a lot better <laughs> than the one know. that we played in my, my, my shut-eye band back in high school. I would say my high school band, not so much. Mike Ray here with us. Last couple of minutes, um, just, just quickly touching on this NBA in-season tournament. Really cool idea. Definitely borrows from European soccer. What's the problem in your mind? Because it stands out to me as well. So so let's start out. I think this is so much fun. I'm not, I'm, I'm a college basketball fan before NBA. I, I will, you know, like I'm prior season ticket holder, um, March Madness. I don't do anything but flip between different CBS owned platforms yeah. to be able to watch as many of the games as I can. I happened upon the Celtics game a couple of days or a couple of weeks ago. And I noticed the court was different. And I texted my brother. I'm like, why is the, did they get rid of the parquet? Like, <laughs> the, that, that landmark. And he said, no, it's the in-season tournament. 
And I knew that this was coming about. I was like, this is such a cool idea. It makes these games matter. It gives the fans a point of entry into it. It gives you something else to follow in terms of standings that are on there. I love the fact that there's real money on the table. Like the, the winning teams, each, each player is getting a half a mil if they win this in-season tournament. Right. The NBA is the best branding sports league in America. They're better than the NFL at this. And they're calling the damn thing the in-season tournament. Yeah. Why aren't we calling it the Kobe Cup? Why aren't we calling it the Russell Challenge or something else? Like Brand this thing. Put something around it in the way that European soccer has been able to figure out how to make these things that happen mid-season matter. Um, in-season tournament just seems like something that that like the half-drunk intern that came in late that morning thought of when someone else came up with this great idea for putting it all together. So my if, if Adam Silver is listening to this, if he happens to be coming through Rhode Island to catch up for something in Boston or whatever, let us help you brand this. Let us put some real marking around it. Let's put something on there that is better than in-season tournament. Well said right there. Mike Rea, Half Street Group. Every month, you'll hear this kind of insight, this kind of analysis right here in Bartholomew Town. And if you need that kind of analysis, insight, and perspective for your firm, your brand, your organization, Half Street Group's your stop. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much, Bill. Can't wait for next month.